Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone who loves stories, loves books, just wants to know, what are those writers up to? What are they doing? Are they okay? Writers, are you alright? Are you okay? Are you well? Do you need a hug? Um... It is important for me to say before we go any further with today's show, I want to give you a big old content warning about what is to come. I, I, I'm not very good at doing content warnings, actually, a lot of the time uh, because I don't really think about it because often it doesn't affect me personally. I don't bother. You know, it's it's laziness and I need to do better on it. And, and sometimes, you know, conversations go in unexpected ways. And then when I'm editing it, I forgot we talked about that, you know, because I'm naturally quite an open person or certainly within this medium I'm at I am I forget uh that you know some days you want to be able to have some control over what you're listening to and pick and choose and that's an important part of well it's just important right it's for some of us it's not something that is a massive consideration but that doesn't mean that it's not important uh so and I you know I just want this to be a lovely show for you that you can use. So the the thing about today's episode is that we the the main thrust of what we're chatting about are eating disorders and eating and you know psychological uh, issues and mental health as a kind of appended onto that because you know a lot of the way my ways into it are by analogy through my anxiety experiences with anxiety and depression so um just want to say if you if today is not your day to be uh, listening to stuff about that uh then you know look you know you trust yourself you know i think it's important that you um give yourself a break and be nice to yourself of course it's a difficult decision sometimes because sometimes if it's something that's pertinent to you you want to be able to listen because you want to learn but I just want to say you know I just want to give you that warning up front that's what we're going to be talking about uh so if today you would rather not be dealing with that on top of whatever else you're dealing with today then by all means uh you know leave it until a time when you're uh, in, a, in a better place if you would like to listen um that's fantastic I think as you can probably tell today's show is a bit unusual but uh, you know frankly I, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm pushing the podcast to a place where every show feels a bit unusual. That would be my idea, ideal situation. Really, is just is is to not have any normal episodes anymore. I, I, you know, I love routine as much as the next perpetually stressed, anxiety-prone, socially awkward nerd, but. I, I like learning new stuff. And so I've got the guest on today. Uh, it, her name's uh, Emily Trishanko, and she's done some research into books and uh, specifically did a piece of research on eating disorders. And I thought this would be interesting for... Well, I'll just name three reasons. There's more reasons why it's interesting. And actually, she's a fabulous guest. I really, really enjoyed talking to her. And she just talks about books and stories in 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 a way that just you know she you know likes reading as well and uh 
it was it was really really nice chatting to her and she's really open and uh really insightful and actually talked about stuff in um it's really difficult to combine rigor with like humanity i i, I think the two things are not obviously connected and I think it's a real talent to be able to talk about research and the limitations of research and psychology um, while also being like, you know, being personable and relating it to stuff you've been through yourself. So, you know, awesome, awesome guest. But I think today's interesting because one, I think if you're going to write, then it behooves you to have a little think about how what you're writing might affect people and how you can write in a way that makes your writing accessible to as many readers as possible. Am I advocating that there are certain topics that you can never ever deal with? No, I'm just saying that it's worth, I think it's you know, if you're going to spend ages, as we do on this show, you know, chatting about grammar and where best to put a particular word in a sentence or whatever, then shouldn't we spend a little bit of time thinking about the social responsibility of our writing? I think that's an important topic to raise and not in a angry, judgmental, censorious way, but like basically coming from the initial understanding that we... We all want to do well by our readers, right? We all want people to read our work. And if you believe that writing has some kind of social instrumentality, that it has some agency, that it can open people up to new vistas, that it can change people's minds, that it can subtly work on someone's assumptions or their emotional state, then it becomes clear to me if you accept that as a premise, then sometimes you're going to want to think, how can I make sure I'm not doing this in a way that might damage someone? So we do touch on that. But also we're talking about reading, you know, and challenging some of the oft-mooted uh, assumptions or propositions or suppositions. Uh, I don't I'm, today I'm I'm a little bit tired and I can't remember the difference between propositions and suppositions. I, I can really, I just, you know, I just like repeating multiple words because if you do it fast enough and you don't then stop to kind of go back and undermine what you just said, it sounds actually like you're, in, you're rather articulate. And if you lose some people, then they just assume that's their fault for not being intelligent enough. You know, suppositions, propositions, expositions, impositions, oppositions, repositions, and nepotisms. Right, so anyway, look, I just, we, we talk a bit about, um, I'm getting off off topic here, but now <laughs> by, by criticising myself, which is always the way, isn't it? Um, no, but we, we, you know, we talk a little bit about this idea of bibliotherapy and people reading to make themselves better. And it kind of like intersects with representation a little bit, actually, in that, you know, is the best thing for somebody who is suffering uh, or being challenged by a particular mental health challenge or disorder or whatever is the best thing always for them to re read a representation of exactly what they're going through uh and you know you can probably guess uh what 
tentative answer is but Emily's you know done some studies on this and I should say like actually she's not equivocal about all these things but it's certainly uh it's I love having chats with people who've actually gone out and done the research and I've got some data because we get to actually have nuance and we get people to say well we can tentatively draw these conclusions but you might want to think about this that's why I get people like Emily on the show because especially in the social media age but I suspect since the beginning that humans had any kind of intellectual discourse whatsoever we tend to kind of filter things through a variety of semi-conscious heuristics that make it really <laughs> easy to exaggerate certain bits of data and sort of sand off the funky edges of how the world actually works. And I just really like getting people who know their shit on the show to talk about stuff because inevitably they you know they they speak to the complexities of these issues and i think you're smart enough to hear that and to get a sense of it and i just feel enriched by having these conversations and i you know i'm not trying to valorize myself as some kind of uh, a social or cultural crusader that you know that's for other people to uh, say if they uh, if they think that it would be arrogant of me, frankly, to deny that they're right. But I'm joking. In case I've read, sometimes I say things sort of tongue in cheek, and because you're all lovely, you you take me at my word, and I, I'm obviously joking. Um, but the point is, I just really like having people on in this long form form where they can talk about. The messiness of these things I, uh, and you know she's talking from experience backed up with data and i think that is cool so i think you're going to really be interested in what we chat about today it's something i don't think you'll have heard before um and i would say also don't worry it's not going to be one of these episodes where you listen to the whole thing and then go oh my gosh i can't write anything ever again because what if I mess it up? What if I hurt someone? What if I get, you know, mobbed or shamed for, for for picking the wrong subject? I don't think that's what you're going to get out of this. Uh, I I think it's just, I think it, you can, you know, I, of course I understand the anxieties of a writer. And of course I understand the mixture of anxiety at being, you know, pilloried or ostracized and the anxiety and the you know genuine human desire to make other human beings happy and read your work and not exclude people um and we, we don't solve it all in one episode but i think you know mostly you'll come away from this feeling empowered and with food for thought and with you know just like a slightly better framework for dealing with some of these things particularly uh, on the subject of um, eating disorders but you know I think by analogy and of course like every you know all of these things work in uh, sometimes semi-analogous but not identical ways so I you know I, I'd never want to suggest that you know you can one stands for all of them because if you use that as your model you're always going to miss things out uh, but I think it's a really good place to start and it's one of the lesser talked subjects 
Uh, I've certainly never heard anyone talking about it before in books. So um, I hope you enjoy uh, me chatting with uh, Emily Trushenko. Uh Just to, to add, um, I've got a couple of books out, The Honours and The Ice House. Um, the Ice House has been out a few weeks now. I'd really, if you love the podcast, I'd love it, love it, love it if you got those books and um, left some reviews on places like Amazon or other places. You don't have to have bought them from Amazon to leave reviews. It just helps me. Um, the Ice House is, you know, it hasn't had much media coverage. If I'm honest, I'm feeling a bit anxious about it. I don't want to sound like a whinger, though. I I, I feel very, very, very happy with the book, actually. My feelings about, oh, is the book going to be good enough, have actually kind of largely dissipated. <laughs> They've turned into a kind of sense of entitlement i think of just going fuck you this is an awesome book fuck you this is a you this is an amazing book i've done brilliantly i've put my heart and soul into it of course it's good so that's what's going on with me but if you if you would like to you know grab yourself copies of those two books uh you'd be doing me a solid and you'd be helping me continue to be a professional writer and continue to make these podcasts as well if you just like to donate to the podcast directly if you think tim I, I don't care about your books, but I do want you to continue making this podcast. Um, then uh, I've got a coffee page as well. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare, where you can chuck a little bit of money into the hat to um, just helps keep the lights on here, helps me pay for my SoundCloud and uh, website recording costs because don't have any sponsors on the show. So I can continue to do this without it actually costing me money. Right. That's me Dunsies. Uh, here's me chatting to Emily Trushenko. I hope you enjoy it. So today I'm joined by Emily Trushenko, who we're going to talk about some of her, uh, some of the really interesting areas that she's researched. Um, Emily, before, first off, hello. Hello. I, I want to, before I go any further, because I, I've done this with a, a lot of the academics I've talked to and doctors and things like that. Can I, can I get your actual job title so I get that right right from the beginning and I'm not just inventing sort of professions for you that aren't true uh well I have a mixture of uh well one I suppose or possibly two no one proper job and then various other freelance and other roles uh my my research title is research associate at the uh the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities or TORCH at the University of Oxford um, I'm also a writing partnerships program coordinator um, for the humanities at Oxford, um, and then beyond that, as I say, sort of freelance writer and recovery coach, uh, and various other bits and pieces. Okay, so um, we're going to talk today a little bit about uh, the idea of, I guess it's been termed like bibliotherapy, but like where this kind of popular idea of um, reading for kind of self-help and not just explicitly you know reading books that are self-help books but just uh, reading as a general way to improve personal well-being but before we get there I was wondering if I could just ask a little bit about your own uh, sort of like experiences uh, with reading were you a big reader growing up huge as a as a child and as a teenager yes uh, and I suppose that's why I chose to well do French English German at A-level and then go on to read French and German undergrad um, 
I suppose then, sadly, the combination of studying literature very intensively for many years and also having an eating disorder together kind of wrecked reading for me. Um, so I, I almost entirely, as an undergraduate, stopped reading, you know, English literature for fun and, you know, read lots of very dense French and German stuff, but not really with, well, with increasingly little pleasure. Um, and I think the, I think the anorexia also played a part in that, just making me very, very work obsessed and very not inclined to do anything that felt at all demanding or at all like work in the rest of the time. Um, and so, yeah, I guess at that point, my reading habits kind of fragmented into, you know, lots of Proust and Goethe on the one hand, and then just reading nonsense, like mag magazine articles about, I don't know, restaurant reviews or recipes or other quite food centric things. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it took a while actually after I, after I recovered from anorexia to start to get back into the reading habit. And, and now I am, and, and it's lovely, and it, it feels sad to me that it ever really went away, but um, I suppose that's part of what we'll be talking about later. Yeah, can you remember what were, when you were sort of back when you were um, a child and a teenager, when you were like really into reading and you were reading presumably largely for pleasure, can you remember a, any of the books that you were back then that you were reading that really captured your imagination or transported you or that you loved um there was a lot of kind of uh victorian romantic slash realist stuff i guess i was obsessed with the brontes for a long time partly because one of them's called emily we <laughs> 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 have great reasons for seeking out authors um and yeah so a lot of that kind of stuff george Eliot and and i don't know that kind of period and and genre um and also more kind of fantasy stuff. I mean, I got very wrapped up in Lord of the Rings, which um, I think for many people probably kind of infuses their personal fantasy life in a very powerful way. Certainly it did for me. Um, so, so yes, quite, I mean, quite a range, although never really very far into, for example, sci-fi or, uh, uh, yeah, probably actually all quite, gender typical in a way but who knows yeah i mean those are all awesome choices right i mean i I must admit like they're all also quite precocious as well or in the sense that sorry precocious might be sound like it's somehow pejorative but i just mean it was i was maybe i was just slow but i didn't it wasn't till my like early 20s that i felt that i got you know started reading george Eliot. that um i read lord of the rings to be honest like they those all seemed like quite Mm. Um, quite tough book. So you must have been a really, you know, like you must have you must have been like like super smart, right, to be able to kind of like engage with those books and the Brontes. You know, like it's quite sophisticated stuff, right? Yeah, it's funny you say precocious because, in fact, I think one of my primary motivations for reading Lord of the Rings first time round, um, I was still, I think it was right at the end of primary school when I, when I read it. And I remember wow. the only re like, or primary reason for deciding to do so was we had to, um, at some point we had a, a little slot of, of one of the lessons where we had to call out the page number of the book that we'd been reading in, I don't know, for the last <laughs> half hour or something. And I just really wanted to get to, you know, page 1052 or a couple <laughs> of So it was a really shit reason for, for deciding to read it. But, it, you know, luckily it was a good book anyway. Yeah. yeah. And, and you sort of said as you got, as you got older, 
and especially once you're in university that that feeling of writing the, of reading as being uh something that you were allowed to do for yourself and something that wasn't i get you know from what you were saying i do do tell me if i'm sort of misinterpreting but that it it somehow became like a like a trial or like a challenge that you could either pass or fail and you either had it either had to be sort of deeply meaningful stuff that was pushing something forward or or you couldn't do it at all and it had to be sort of meaningless and there was sort of no all it sounds like you really lost the middle ground yes yes I think that's kind of it um I think you know one of the reasons I decided to to study French and German rather than English was was because I was scared of this happening. I didn't want to wreck English literature for myself because it had always been such a such a love. Um, but uh, I guess it ended up happening anyway, and it just meant that I wasn't even reading any English stuff anymore. And and of course, with with other languages, I mean, by the end of of undergrad, I was pretty pretty fluent in both French and German. But reading in other languages, well, at least for me, I guess I I was not was not completely fluent enough that, that there was the the total absence of kind of emotional barrier that you have with your own with your mother tongue um, so so yes the 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 stuff that I was studying was and of course you know if you are doing literary studies you're encouraged to in most ways of teaching it to kind of separate yourself off from the uh, kind of intellectual structures of how you're how you're responding to things and I mean part of my research has been trying to reverse that and to bring the the reader's experience back into legitimate um, forms of, of literary study but that was not happening at Oxford in 2000 um, and and so yeah that combination of things turned it as you say into a kind of thing that you can that you can seed or succeed or fail at and into a thing where I had to prove myself and write extremely clever things about it and you know all that which is really not conducive to to just having delightful and you know personally meaningful uh literary experiences i actually returned to hesse's steppenwolf um recently i was kind of half german half english pronunciation of it but uh der steppenwolf mm. in, in german was how i'd always experienced it before and i read it in the english translation last year and I was just so struck by how much more personally meaningful it, it felt to me this time around. Partly, you know, I guess I've got older and I've got more experiences and and more stuff to, you know, to find relevance with. But it just hadn't affected me at all when I read it as an undergrad. And it was so weird to reflect back on that and just how you how much you can miss in a book that even the book that you study very, very deeply. Do you think do you think I should do you think I should read it? Because my dad now you mentioned that my dad has got his copy um with i think english on one on the left hand pages and german on the right hand pages covered in his his own sort of pencil notes from when he was studying um because my my grandmother his mother w was um was german and he uh was a language he was a languages teacher um but he was but he's say he was constantly he is had a couple of runs at kind of getting me to read um i'm gonna just call it steppenwolf rather than i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm not gonna jump halfway across that river and um fall in um uh is it 
is it is it good? Sorry, that's like the most unsophisticated question ever about. <laughs> I, I should at least, having done like a literature degree, have some kind of level of like pro grip, pro at least like I should have picked some kind of like thematic line to go down. If I asked you, Steppenwolf, is it good then? <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, you should definitely read it. Um, oh, wow. I think it's, you know, for anyone who has any angst about being alive, it's great. Wow. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's my, that's, you, you really, really keyed into, into, that's like, that's like you did a, like a Facebook ad and only chose, only selected it down to me. Uh, angst about life. Yes, please. Except everyone would also say the same, I suspect. Yeah. I, 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 so I, um, that's really, really, it's really, really interesting what you were saying. And I know that, um, as well as you know that you the the research that sort of certainly I became aware of you and uh, read about um, was your research uh, into eating disorders, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the research you've done there and how you became interested in the area, and then also how you've started how you kind of came to the point of linking this idea of bibliotherapy or how we relate to literature with you know eating disorders and uh ha- you know our own uh psychic well-being i guess i know this is a huge question that i'm opening up but um... <laughs> okay i'll try and take those bits uh, maybe not in the same order but um i'll start with how i got into it um I mean, making the link between eating disorders and reading in a way, the, the answer is trivial. It's just because, you know, I was interested in reading and I used to have an eating disorder. And there's, it's very it's very easy to come up with lots of post hoc rationalizations of, of why those two topics fit together nicely. And I'm happy to give some of those reasons too. But um, for me, it was it was really just a sort of um, personal confluence of those, those two interests and sets of experiences. Um, so I'd... Yeah, I sort of kept them resolutely separate and it had never really struck me that, that for example, the, the loss of interest in uh, recreational reading when I was ill might be, you know, linked in an interesting way to, to my experience of, of anorexia. Uh, it had never, although I did have a couple of sort of therapeutically interesting um, reading experiences during recovery, I never really attributed that much significance to them. Um, and it was only a few years later when um, I'd, I'd returned to a, a story of Kafka's called uh, called A Hunger Artist, which is actually the name of the blog that I write on eating disorders as well. Um, and I'd read this story many, many times as an undergrad, but again, missed lots of stuff in it, I, I suppose. And I was really struck when I, when I reread it now from a recovered perspective that so this is a story about a, a man who fasts for other people's entertainment. He, uh, to begin with, he's very popular and people flock to the cage and, and are fascinated to see how, you know, how many days have been clocked up on the fasting clock and, you know, uh, everything is great. And then gradually people start to lose interest and, and rush past him to the circus animals who are far more interesting. And uh, in the end, it becomes clear that he's not really fasting for other people. He's fasting because he doesn't know what else to do. And, um, well, I won't spoil the end of the story, but in any case, I realized at this point that um, despite the fact that he's called the hunger artist or in German, 
the hunger künstler, so it could be either the hunger artist or the fasting artist, um, he's never once described as experiencing any hunger. And that was really interesting to me because one, I thought, given my history, surely that should have been something that had always leapt out at me because I would expect myself to be quite attuned to to that aspect of people's experience. Um, and also raised lots of questions about, well, why doesn't he or or does he, but it's not given in the narrative. <clears throat> you know, the narrative perspective is not such that that it would be mentioned, but it is almost all focalised from his perspective. So it should be, um, you know, what's going on here in terms of the the kind of cognitive uh, experiential realism of the thing, What's what kind of uh, responses are being prompted in readers by that absence, um, what more can be said about uh, how how readers' personal histories might feed into um, perception or evaluation of that, that absence or not. So all these kind of questions, and that just made me think, well, there could be not only theoretical work to be done in, in at this intersection of uh, literary reading and disordered eating, but also, you know, beyond my experience, questions about other people's experiences. And this was something that had become very important to me in my doctoral work before that. So I um, started doing experiments on readers' responses more generally. Um, but suddenly it occurred to me, actually, clinical kind of, you know, health-related questions ought to be tackled empirically in this area too, because we don't, you know, I started reading around and basically very little is known. Um, so that was where it all started. Yeah, because there's a lot of... Um... Thank you, by the way. That's really, really interesting. I. It's funny how a lot of these questions get tackled in the forms of sort of loose personal essays or authors sort of get interested in the subject and um, they'll kind of muse on it and draw a few things together. But the idea of actually taking some of the tools of uh, social psychology or taking some of the tools of science and actually doing some kind of quantitative you know, actually asking people, what do you think about this? Actually getting some data on it uh, is often, has ne you know, never crosses people's mind. These are things to be considered artistically. And I'm not um, for a moment saying that there's no value in that. But to actually go, should we, should we ask some people then? Should we, should we actually look into this? Should we actually take this as something to be studied and actually do an inquiry that isn't entirely personal but is actually looking to other people as well it feels to me like that's something quite or at least in my experience and of course it could just be ignorance that that seems to be something quite rare is that the case or are there is there uh, more um are there more uh, precedent here than i'm aware of no there isn't really i mean it's starting to change i would say but i think i think you're right that in general this this area has probably been characterized by sort of dichotomy between the humanities people and the and the artsy people who would who would just basically assume you know reading must be valuable and therefore kind of good for you um, and would never think to test that assumption out because of course it's true or at least never think to test it out because you never test anything you just you know have theories uh, slightly unfair but not very um, I, I don't think that that I mean that chimes with my experience absolutely because one why would you test it because what if you find out it's not well then you might be out of a job and two like 
you kind of like, why would you, oh, you can't capture those things within the finite net of the sciences anyway. You know, I, I you know, whenever I talk about, whenever I start like coming out with stuff about fMRI scans and, you know, uh, uh, broker's area in the brain and things like that, like people, you know, from li- literature, from like humanities and especially from like literary academics, look at me like I've, Look at me like I, when I say I've been talking to like a neuroscientist and I, I, I share my, you know, what I was told, they look at me like I've just come, I'm coming to them and saying, oh yeah, the um the fairies down the bottom of my garden had a really interesting thing to say on that last week. I've been, I've just been in conference with my neighbour's garden gnomes. Like, like it, it's like, it seemed, they react like I'm such a, it's such a absolutely wild thing to do to look across the floor and ask the sciences. Mm, yes. And to be fair, I mean, my there is a vast gulf between, you know, neuroimaging and the questions that the humanities try to tackle. And I, for myself, I've not necessarily found um, that neuroscience specifically has been is yet at the is yet methodologically able to give us purchase on those questions in as useful a way as say experimental psychology or something where where the method where, where the gap is slightly less small less less wide um, but but yeah I think I think your your general point about about the anathema of kind of testing is is exactly right and partly it's just an educational kind of not having any idea how to even begin kind of problem and it is daunting if you're if you're starting off with a humanities background that encourages none of that. Um, but that point about not being able to capture the, you know, ineffable richness of it is, yeah, it's really frustrating because um, one, it's just totally defeatist. It's like, well, everything I have to say and ask about this topic is just so complex. I could never pin it down to a natural hypothesis. And secondly, it's, it's always based on really simplistic mischaracterizations of science um and well i suppose thirdly you know if you don't think science is being done right then do some better you know um so all those things are kind of frustrating i, w- I would say that your your the, the, your point there about neuroscience actually being quite you know in its infancy and 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 i i think also like the prefix neuro being st- stuck in front of stuff and that becoming very in vogue without necessarily t- telling us anything that isn't obvious um i would say that also that scepticism is shared by the neuroscientists I've spoken to when I've gone, oh, wow, so this is the answer to, like, why we write then. And they've gone, um, <laughs> not really. And actually, a lot of this is better looked at through behavioural studies and talking to people because seeing what the brain's doing is interesting, but it doesn't really tell you anything that behaviour or observation or just asking a person doesn't, like, you don't, like that bit the brain's lit up great how the what how do we use that because we've got to feed that back into practical human terms for it to be useful to us yeah and sometimes the triangulation of different methods i mean i've certainly found that with in in a slightly different realm with you know combinations of qualitative and quantitative data and whatever you know that the combinations can often be telling but on the other hand you can spend a hell of a lot less money just doing the other stuff and <laughs> leaving that <laughs> Um, so so yes I think it's uh, uh, I'm sure you know as as both the science matures and and people's attitudes mature and you know it all 
uh, it all progresses, then then the the usefulness will increase. But can you talk a little bit about um, the 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 study, the research that you've done particularly, then because um, and you know a little bit about how you did it and um, what you expected to find, and then what you've what you found through doing it. Mm. Uh, so yeah, the idea for the specific project that I have done so far came about because, um, well, in academia at the moment, knowledge exchange, at least in UK academia, knowledge exchange has become one of those buzzwords. So it basically means kind of two-way exchange of, of knowledge and ideas and ways of thinking between academia and some part of the rest of the world. Um, so there was some, back in 2014, there were some uh, knowledge exchange fellowships being advertised here at Torch. and. Uh, the idea is you get six months to set up a collaboration with a, a non-academic partner, and and this seemed like an opportunity to to get going with this kind of work. So I contacted the main UK eating disorders charity, Beat, and asked them whether they'd be interested in doing something. And their research officer, John Kelly, was very keen, um, and and that's where it started. And we, I mean, trouble is six months is is not really time enough to do anything, um, and uh, the when we had lots of overambitious ideas, but the thing that we ended up actually doing was uh, conducting a big online survey, asking people, just kind of scoping out the territory, I suppose, um, in terms of people's perceptions of the relevance of their reading habits to their mental health with a specific focus on eating disorders. Um, and the first thing to say is just how overwhelming the response was. I mean, I was thinking we'd maybe get a couple of hundred responses maybe if we were lucky um but we got nearly 900 people take this wow. survey and and it was wow. not for a simple survey either we put a whole lot of stuff in it um and so that in itself was was i suppose the first little bit of evidence of, of the fact that this really matters to people um so the vast majority um all but a hundred odd of the respondents uh, had some personal experience either past or present of of an eating disorder um, probably the other 112 or whatever are not entirely representative of a general population because, you know, they would have encountered this this survey most likely somewhere eating disorder-like, um, although we did try to broaden the publicity beyond that. Um, so, the, yeah, the, the conclusions about the kind of healthy control group have to be taken with uh, some pinches of salt. Um, and, yes, as I say, we asked people a lot of stuff about... Um, you know how much they read whether they recommend uh books to people who are ill or have had books recommended um whether they see different types of book as having been helpful or harmful to them in context of their eating disorder um asking them a bit about the the particular respects in which that helpfulness or harmfulness might have manifested um and then we had a series of questions at the end which sort of went into a bit more detail on um on the help and harm specifically on four dimensions so effects on of reading on mood on self-esteem on how you feel about your body and on your diet and exercise habits and for those questions we distinguished between uh fiction about eating disorders which we defined as you know where it's where it's quite thematically prominent for example a protagonist has an eating disorder or it, you know, comes up in some salient way otherwise. Um, so that on the one hand versus your preferred type of other fiction, um, which we ask people to define from a list of, you know, fantasy, sci-fi, romantic fiction, whatever. Um, and so they, they answered all the questions about those two two genres. Um, and and the, rea the 
the results there were really surprising to me, actually. I mean, I I guess I'd sort of thought that reading fiction about eating disorders would would have both negative and positive potential that, you know, you could, yeah, be sort of dragged in too much and get obsessive about it more, but also that it could be really valuable to, uh, you know, to to feel like you're not alone in this, to get some more kind of understanding of, of uh, what it is that's happening to you, all that kind of thing. Um, and that, was, that does happen for some people, but overwhelmingly the respondents to our survey reported um, negative effects of reading such uh, such fiction on, on all those four dimensions. Um, and that was very interesting, not just in the context of my own slightly woolly expectations, but also in relation to the uh, the existing sort of bibliotherapy theory, which not particularly robustly empirically grounded, but the essence of it is, and it's not eating disorder specific, but the essence is find books about someone going through as similar a thing to you as possible and then learn from them <laughs> and then, you know, get yourself out of it. Uh, so it's not very sophisticated and I think it has all kinds of theoretical issues with it, but it's also absolutely not what people are reporting is happening here. That's really interesting because, so, of course, now having, like, read, you know, your research and what you found, I, I found myself go going, oh, well, yeah, of course, but, and, and sort of pretending to myself that I hadn't had that kind of, like you say, slightly um, vague theory at the beginning that reading almost without, I would have guessed, I think I would have had as an unexamined belief that reading fiction and poetry almost completely agnostic of genre or content would be broadly therapeutic that it would be basically it would make you feel more relaxed um that it would trigger you know some empathy in you that it would make you it would kind of make you feel part of more of the human story blah 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 blah, blah. I, you know the reasons you know I haven't really examined and yeah like you say if it was about the problem someone was going through you know like an eating disorder I would imagine that you would read it and it would actually be giving you a, a safe proxy and it would be giving you sort of strategies and it would be reducing feelings of shame um so my guess with it you know just from you know the way that all most of us just guess a bunch of stuff that we don't know and then um, have way too much faith in our own random hunch um my guess would have been that it would be i'd be like oh yeah that'd be great yeah yeah it's wonderful oh yeah read it reading is great clearly also being an author with a slight background of feeling well I want books to do that because I want more people to buy them. But you're, but people, you know, people you're saying are report were reporting something quite different to that. Yeah. So I should say also that for conversely for their preferred type of other fiction, um, the reports, as you would expect, are much more mixed, um, but also generally more positive. So either neutral or particularly on mood, a positive effect, which which is in line with what you said about being nice and relaxing and whatever. And I think, you know, it's easy to to kind of downplay the significance of just mood. But, you know, being cheered up by stuff matters. And, and so that was that was definitely an important finding on the positive side. Um but yes, I mean, I'm sure that none of the authors of these 
these novels and memoirs because I don't think necessarily people were being very systematic in their distinctions between fiction and non-fiction here. Um, I'm sure that none of those authors are trying to do harm. Um, most of them are uh, framed as, as pro-recovery narratives, um, whether the protagonist does actually get better in the end, as is in, it happens in many cases, or whether they die, but that's presented as a negative. Um, you know, the the message is not typically a pro-anorexia or pro-eating disorder message, but on the other hand, you know, that doesn't necessarily matter. Um, and people will do things with text that you don't expect and perhaps would be uncomfortable with. Can you, would you, I, I realise there's like a broad range of responses to this and it's nuanced and I don't want to sort of ask you questions that are trying to sort of make you flatten down the big range of responses that people gave you but when people were harmed by reading a narrative with disordered eating in it particularly um even though like you say it may have been written by somebody you know, who was a, a you know a fellow uh, survivor? You know, who had been through the things. Who was deeply sort of empathetic to those struggles. Um, do you have any sort of thoughts about what is going on there? Why? Because, like you say, like there's this idea that we read about other people's suffering, and I've wondered this myself. You know, you create characters, and then you kind of put them through hell right because that's how you create narrative tension that's um you know from the i hate to bring it back to neuroscience again but that's you know from speaking to the neuroscientist uh paul j zach talking about that you gain the reader's attention by making them release cortisol like the that's what you know attention is a metabolically costly uh thing to to uh focus so by having these things that cause stress um we make readers pay attention because they go aha this is something that i need to watch this is a potential threat can you explain to me what you think it is that was that was causing people um who you know suffered from eating disorders um you know it making them change their eating or exercise habits or making them obsessively reflect on those things um from reading about it in the book because the standard thing is this idea you read it and actually it's very cathartic and you get rid of those feelings by seeing them embodied in a proxy yes uh yeah that that's definitely not what's happening when the when the negative effects are being manifested um i think i think a lot of it comes down to and it probably uh aligns quite nicely with the sort of cortisol uh stress hypothesis um a lot of it seemed to come down to a very much narrowed kind of interpretive filter that the eating disorder is placing on everything. Um, so several people talked about, um, I mean, lots of people gave uh, very rich free response answers in addition to the course um, choice ones. And, and quite a few talked about uh, feeling like the eating disorder screens out everything that doesn't align with its value system. So, you know, there might be lots of descriptions in the book about about the rubbish aspects of, of having such an eating disorder, but the, their, their eating disorder mindset would just focus on the, the mention of the, um, the success, the control, the power, rather than the pain and the suffering, for example, and, and latch onto them and, and heighten them. So 
that's definitely part of it is that you just lose the capacity to even even absorb even be aware of the stuff that doesn't align um and some people took actually which which shocked me and perhaps shouldn't have given all i know about the the competitive nature of eating disorders and the deep ambivalence about recovery but quite a few people just spontaneously mentioned having deliberately sought out books to make themselves worse to kind of trigger themselves into um having to, to becoming more ill and exacerbating the illness um and and so you know if you if you find a book for that reason of course all you're going to be doing is looking out for the tips of how to eat less or how to make yourself throw up better or whatever it might be um um so, you know, intentions for reading clearly play a huge role as well. That's, I mean, that's, that's really, that's really upsetting to hear, you know, that the, I, but I can really understand what you're saying as well, that of course you don't, as an author, you don't get to control the, the lens that someone's bringing to your, your fiction. Um, and as soon as it's got some kind of semblance of life to it, then the d- whole thing about the dialectic of fiction is that you have a multiplicity of voices in a book. You know, you have different interpretations are possible because you have some kind of nuance to it. And so then, of course, any condition, any, I guess, uh, mental health challenge, whether it's an eating disorder, whether it's, you know, disordered thinking, I, I mean, I, this is a, a, I hope it doesn't sound like a sort of uh, f- facile comparison, but when my anxiety disorder was at its worst, I found it incredibly difficult to read or even watching a film, you know, like where there's a, a side angle shot of a character when they like walk into a road and then they turn back to address someone. I constantly felt like they were going to be hit by a bus. I was constantly cast, and it, regardless of the genre of film, I was constantly casting about for threats, constantly casting about for this person's going to get killed, this this thing this person cares about is going to get destroyed. Um, films were, even when it was like 10 minutes into the film and the person standing in the road was like the main character. Like, as if they were going to kill off the protagonist straight away. Things that any rational person would say, that's nuts. This is like a this is like a children's film. <laughs> like, were they, why would they kill off the main? That would be horrendous. But you can't, even though it's fiction, you can't always switch off those, what feel can feel like very hard-fought-for filters. Like, this, in my case, anxiety disorder is, is protecting me from getting, you know, whether it's getting mugged, getting uh, emotionally hurt, uh, getting, uh, losing my job, whatever. These things are protecting me. So don't take it away from me. I'm I'm watching to see if a bus is going to hit someone because I want everyone to be safe. And so I can really, now you've said that, it seems, it's well, it's like anything revelatory. Now it seems obvious to me. Of course you would, because because you feel that that is serving you in some way even as it on a greater level you know is a net loss yeah and there is there have has been some theory proposed about uh bibliotherapeutic effects um potentially having a kind of um exposure therapy type function so in the context of uh, ptsd for example that you that it might be the transportation into a fictional world allows you to to confront those both those stimuli and your standard coping mechanisms and kind of diffuse them in that safer situation which i think it seems 
kind of a plausible hypothesis, although it's not been tested. Um, but yeah, what you say, I mean, it's so sad to hear what you say about the, about just those specific shots or whatever being so, so over salient to you, but it's exactly the same in the, in the verbal context. So I think some, one of the respondents mentioned that just certain phrases would just pop out at her and then just stick in her head forever. Like, I think she said, um, there, I don't know what the hell book this was, but she said there was a phrase, I enjoy violent purging. And now, and then for that, forever after that, that phrase was just stuck in her head. And if she was making herself sick, she would ask herself, is it violent enough? And, you know, just those kind of, those tiny little fragments of, of some aesthetic object that just get stuck and go round and round and, and make everything worse. It's, uh, yeah, it's remarkable how, how much power there can be in little things like that. It sounds like, because you talked about, you know, this exposure therapy and PTSD, do you think there's scope for bibliotherapy, for people to read books and those to help them, um, I guess, under under supervision? You know, is it the kind of thing um, where if somebody has somebody to essentially hold their hand, you know, someone to check in with, could that could could it be helpful then to like re- reflect on these things? It, you know, is well, I guess what I'm asking you to speculate on, and and do say if you feel like you've got no idea or you don't want to speculate, that um, is the issue that the books are kind of in these cases um, a kind of they're kind of self-medicating and they don't actually have anyone to talk to about these thoughts that the books are bringing up, or even with, you know, even in a therapeutic context, are they likely to kind of create those things unless they're very kind of carefully screened for content? I don't, I don't know what I'm, I, I'm getting. Just you know, from what you're saying, it sounds like people are kind of stuck with these things alone. Um, yeah, I think I think it's really important. And actually, in the in the existing research on self help bibliotherapy, i.e., getting people to read self help books, um, there has been a systematic distinction made between pure self help, where you literally just read the book on your own, and guided, where you have some kind of professional support in in you know assimilating the content of the book and, and learning from it. Um, and I think the question of how that would how that would work in the in the fiction or literature context is is really interesting and really important and actually i'm hopefully going to start a collaboration soon with um with a phd student who wants to investigate this with um young adult sport fiction she wants to to work with uh sports fiction is quite interesting kind of boundary case because it's kind of about bodies needing but not in that very pathological sense um so so yes i think giving people i suppose sort of encouraging cultivating the skill of critical reflection on one's own experiences is probably part of the key to it um because i don't think i hope that the upshot of of findings like this is not you know we must all avoid books like this at all costs you you know with with things that are traumatizing avoidance is rarely the the best strategy uh, especially in a world where you know stuff that can be so-called triggering for eating disorders is just around every corner um just as it is with anxiety, of course, too. Uh, but I think you know the the thing that we need is to is to learn to read better and to be more um, to not take our initial responses at face value. 
And and I suppose that that is actually part of a broader caveat about this research in general, which is, of course, this is just people's people's opinions about their own experiences and the ramifications of them, often a long time after the fact, potentially. And of course, not having privileged insight into cause and effect. And it's quite possible that some of these really upsetting, unpleasant experiences could ultimately have have been educational, have been part of what made them realize, Christ, this is so awful, I need to get out now, or, you know, have just generally contributed to that learning process that ultimately could result in, in recovery and, and maybe did for some people. Oh, it's really, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, what you're saying there gets to the, like, really gets to the nub of one of the, like, toughest kind of quandaries that you sort of find yourself in, especially when you're dealing with anything like a, you know, uh, mental health challenges, eating disorders, things like that, which is on the one hand that people talking about their own lived experiences are often, you know, talking, having, you know, in a social context of shame, on being dismissed, on no one really giving a shit, you know, no one listening, no one caring, and people sort of thinking, you know, your view doesn't matter. But on the other hand, you know, they are also talking about, uh, and I, you know, I know this from my own experiences of mental health challenges, you know, that part of the problem is having one's own insight and judgment sometimes skewed by what you're going through so on on the i think it's an amazing thing that you've done actually in that you are really taking these responses seriously and treating them with humanity and dignity and interest um while also you know reflecting on and you know no just holding them in that kind of like slightly you know at that at that level of going well and also we've got to remember that when you're going through things like this you know you're the you know it lies to you and we've got to remember that as well i think that that must be incredibly hard for you to kind of do both those things and i think it's it, it it's so amazing the sort of like i guess if i can use a non a scientific word the compassion that you bring to it is really really great thank you well i suppose it comes from both having had those experiences and now having that very that very alienated perspective on them where i you know i'm i don't think like that anymore and it kind of amazes me that i ever did and so i i remember how completely incomprehensible it seemed to me then that it could ever be different and I know how important it was that I acted to get myself out of that that sort of self-fulfilling trap in the end. And so, you know, I, I think sort of being able to combine, as you say, the taking seriously with the re- remembering that it's not everything is, yeah, it is really important. It's something I try to do on my blog and maybe that's also made me better practiced at it that, you know, the blog started as very much a sort of, personal ramblings of me in recovery but increasingly it became clear to me that that wasn't necessarily the most useful thing that the really useful thing would be to start to try and uh and make the research and the personal experience talk to each other and you know that's what's so often lacking in in so many so much of the discourse about mental illness and stuff is 
is bringing those perspectives together of if you like the first and the third person or whatever and the second person of just us and you and um you know uh, i suppose that's also happened with the blog like having dialogue with other readers who have slightly different experiences but also not completely different um it all kind of feeds into just getting a richer picture of what what is really happening i want to ask you like as a kind of sort of finalish question um and but i realize that you may either have no opinion on this or not feel that you want to sort of answer it but um are there implications of this and what you found for writers and what do you think a writer's responsibilities are when we say depict uh, an eating disorder or when we talk about potentially um, traumatising content. And I know some of it's socially normalised, like it's fine to have a character be murdered. That's kind of can be in quite a cosy kind of Poirot style fiction. But um, and then there's other things that are kind of completely beyond the pale. But I was wondering, what do you think? Are there things a writer needs to be mindful of when doing this uh, in terms of their readership, in terms of who has access to what, in terms of representing um, these things. I wondered if there's anything, if you had any thoughts on that at all. Mm. Uh, I suppose I would say first, I mean, good writers do, but do your research, you know, don't um, don't assume that your, uh, your kind of folk knowledge about, say, eating disorders or whatever else you're talking about is, is necessarily correct. I mean, with, with eating disorders, there are, there are plenty of standard myths that uh, you can spend a while on Google and you'll probably work out how to debunk, but they are there, like, for example, that people with anorexia just sort of live off apples and black coffee and, um, you know, barely eat a thing, or that everyone who with anorexia looks in the mirror and is emaciated but sees an obese person, or, you know, those kind of easy cliches are... Um, important to get past I think as a, as a first step um, I suppose a second point would be thinking about again about eating disorders in particular um, just be aware of the kind of defaults um, glamorization might be too strong but the default easiest associations between for example slimness or eating less or you know, those kind of things with success, with control, with all the things that were meant to value. Um, a lot of people in the survey responses talked about just just how those things get under your skin. And, you know, as soon as the protagonist is described as as slim and beautiful or something, that they instantly start comparing, you know, how slim is she compared to me? And should I be slimmer? And would, would I be more successful if I were slimmer? And all that kind of thing. So, you know, those, those little things can... Um, can get at people and not that you, I mean, if you, if you want to associate those things because you have some reason to, fine, but do it for a reason. Um, and I suppose that also leads on to a third point, which would be, um, be, don't assume that stuff that isn't in your face isn't powerful. So I've, my previous research was a lot about mental imagery and how we create imaginative experiences from, from linguistic prompts and, um, one of the main conclusions from that was the assumption that we need very detailed, like picture-like descriptions in order to have rich mental imagery is is false. And actually, you know, our visual experience of the world around us is very 
pretty minimal and fragmentary, much more than we like to think. And the same goes with um, with imaginative experiences. There's a lot of a lot of gaps, a lot of stuff that doesn't need filling in. Um, and so my my suspicion in in this kind of more health related context is, you know, you just use a sort of a passing phrase, maybe a uh, an opposite metaphor of some kind, like I don't know. Um, a beautifully willowy woman or something and and that can actually probably set off as much a, a pa- as powerful an imaginative response as you know a much more in-depth physical dissection of a, of a body and exactly its dimensions and its uh, thinness or otherwise or whatever so I I guess the point is well writers do it anyway they writers pay attention to every word and that's just as it should be um, but uh, with these sort of confluences of imagery and metaphor and um, value-laden associations with stuff about bodies, you know, there's a lot that can can really get under people's skin. So just be careful. Okay, thank you so so much for giving up your time today to talk about this, Emily. Did you say you've you've got a blog that um uh, uh, that that kind of like talks about some of these things? Yes, the blog is called Hungratis. It's on the American website Psychology Today. Um, uh, yeah, I imagine you can you can share a link here. Yeah, I'll pu- I'll pop a link in the show notes and on my website. So if anybody wants to go to uh, Emily's blog and uh, read some of their posts, just uh, click in the show notes underneath today's show, and you'll be able to um, go to it. Thanks so much for your time, Emily. It's been really fun talking to you. You too. Thanks very much, Tim. And everyone listening, I hope you have a lovely week of writing.